Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to John chapter 6. We'll look at verses 37 through 44 as we consider irresistible grace. Would you bow with me in prayer as we ask for God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word? O oh Lord, may the marvelous grace of which we have just sung be taught and caught this evening. May it be heard and may it be felt. Would you use this weak preacher and this weak preaching for I am unable to rightly, to effectually preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in my own strength. Would you take what is weak and use it for eternal good, for eternal fruit? Would you be at work in every heart, in every case of conscience present? Please bring back the backslidden. Please save those who are lost. Please grow those whom you have saved in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as we bow before his majesty, knowing that apart from him we can do nothing, knowing that on our own we would never come to him, for we are wholly unable and wholly unwilling. And may glorious grace be glorified this night, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word? John chapter 6, beginning at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Moving through the five points of Calvinism, we come to the fourth point, irresistible grace, the eye in tulip. And as we've gone through this series on the canons of Dort, I hope you have appreciated that these five points are obviously distinct. They emphasize different aspects of the salvation that is in the Lord Jesus. But I hope you've also picked up on the fact that even though these five points are distinct, they are also inseparable. They are aspects of one organic whole. You can think of it this way, that your head, your arm, your le leg, your foot, your hand, those are five aspects of your body. They're distinct parts of your body, but they are inseparable because you are one body. In the same way, the five points of Calvinism are distinct, 
but they are also inseparable because they are aspects of one unit. In other words, the five points of Calvinism stand or fall together. We cannot pick and choose which points we like and which points we don't like. You've heard of four-point Calvinism. I I even knew of a guy who said he was a two-point Calvinist. Those aren't options. You can't start lopping points off as you see fit. It is a package deal. If you remove one brick from the building, to change the metaphor, the whole building will fall. So these five points are all about salvation, sovereignly conceived, accomplished, and applied by the Lord Jesus and by the, by the triune God. These five points display that salvation is, these five points are distinct, they're inseparable, and they are complementary. Just think about what we've seen so far in this series. Unconditional election is salvation decreed. Total depravity is salvation needed. Limited atonement or particular redemption is salvation accomplished. And tonight, irresistible grace is, is salvation applied. Again, distinct, inseparable, complementary aspects of the salvation that is in the Lord Jesus. Let's go a step further. Listen to this statement from Rick Phillips. One of the most important insights of Reformed theology is the unity of the works of the Trinity. Calvinists believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are united in the work of redeeming lost mankind. We do not believe that they act against one another or even on one another, but with one another in our salvation. Did you catch that Trinitarian emphasis? Salvation is the work of the entire triune God. God the Father elected sinners to salvation. God the Son accomplished salvation for sinners in His death and resurrection. And God the Holy Spirit applies salvation to sinners in His work of regeneration. That is what makes irresistible grace so important. The salvation decreed by the Father in eternity past, the salvation accomplished by the Son must be applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen our need for salvation, total depravity. We've seen that our salvation was decreed before the foundation of the world, unconditional election. We have seen that our salvation was accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection, in particular redemption. And as wonderful as all these things are, as wonderful as all these aspects of salvation are, all of it is useless unless it is applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit personally in our lives. Words of Herman Bavink ring true. Take away its application, and redemption is not redemption. So the very same people the Father elected, the very same people for whom Christ died, those are the very same people the Holy Spirit regenerates and makes alive to, to embrace the Lord Jesus. In order to be really, truly saved from our sin, God must apply the salvation that is in Jesus Christ to us. So then what is irresistible grace? Keep your Bibles open to John 6 and turn in your hymnals to page 854. Look at a section of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is very similar to the Canons of Dort on this and related points. Page 854, look at chapter 10 of effectual calling. Even though the term irresistible grace does not appear in this chapter, 
it does provide a concise definition of it. The words aren't there, but the concept is all throughout. Look at the first two paragraphs of chapter 10. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually or effectively to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Paragraph 2. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. So when we hear irresistible grace, we should also hear effectual calling, regeneration, union with Christ. Did you also notice, again, that Trinitarian emphasis in this description of, of irresistible grace? Ordinarily, when we talk about this fourth point about irresistible grace, we focus on the work of the Holy Spirit, and that is absolutely right and appropriate. But it is not only the Holy Spirit who is at work in applying redemption to sinners. Again, that one point, irresistible grace, is also Trinitarian through and through. God the Father is the one who effectually calls us to embrace Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit enables us to embrace Jesus Christ, and we are united to Christ in that sovereign work of effectual call and regeneration. Again, irresistible grace is not just the work of the Spirit, it is the work of the entire triune God. Those are some comments on introduction and, and definition. Well, what, what then, secondly, is the debate about irresistible grace? Well, on this point, the Synod of Dort, meeting in 1618 and 1619, dealt with the nature of conversion. How is it that sinners are converted? How are sinners made to believe in the Lord Jesus for their salvation? How do they pass from death to life? Is it something the sinner does on his own? Is it something the sinner can do in his own strength but may need some assistance from God? Or is it something that the sinner cannot do at all on his own, something that is totally a work of God alone? This was one of the issues facing the Reformed Church in the Netherlands during the Arminian controversy. The Calvinist view of conversion came to be known as irresistible grace, the Arminian view of conversion could be called resistible grace. In his book, Living for God's Glory, Joel Beakey contrasts the Arminian view, resistible grace, with the Calvinist view, irresistible grace. Resistible grace, the Arminian view, says that the Holy Spirit does all he can to influence each person to turn to God. The Holy Spirit cannot produce re repentance and faith in the soul without the soul exercising its free will to choose repentance and faith. These are, at least in part, man's personal actions, man's personal contributions. The Holy Spirit's call is only outward. It's always resistible. The Holy Spirit's regenerating work is accomplished only when a man responds and cooperates 
The Holy Spirit grants regeneration in response to faith. Faith in the sinner comes first, and then comes regeneration. Well, that's the Arminian view. And if you are a Christian in the United States, chances are good you are familiar, to say the least, with this view of conversion. A few years ago, there was a video of a quartet from Pensacola Christian College where they sang a song entitled, I Give You Freedom. The song was intended to be God's perspective on the freedom that we supposedly exercise in choosing to be saved. Listen to one of the verses of that song. Remember, this is an Arminian song. It it is intended to be God speaking to the sinner about exercising free will in choosing to be saved. Again, this is God speaking in this song. If you want me to, I'll make you whole. I'll only do it, though, if you say so. I'll never force you, for I love you so. I give you freedom. Is it yes or no? I give you freedom. Is it yes or no? What kind of God is this? It is not a sovereign God. It is not an omnipotent God. Perhaps most importantly, it is not a God of love. God does not say, I'll never force you, for I love you so, as we'll see more clearly in a moment. This is what Arminianism does. It exalts man, and it brings God down. That is the view of resistible grace. By contrast, irresistible grace, the view of the Synod of Dort, the Calvinist view, says the Holy Spirit applies salvation to the elect by His regenerating work. The Holy Spirit grants repentance and faith as God-given gifts in the souls of the elect. In addition to the outward call through the preaching of the Word, the Holy Spirit works His inward, irresistible call in the hearts of the elect. The Holy Spirit's saving application is accomplished by His divine, almighty power. The Holy Spirit grants regeneration unto faith. You cannot believe unless the Spirit regenerates you and makes you alive and gives you a heart that can believe. As we've been seeing all along in this series on Calvinism, at every point, Arminianism exalts man, and at every point, Calvinism exalts God. Whether or not Arminians admit that, that is beside the point. That is their position. It is logically leading to that conclusion and also starts from that premise that man is great. Children, you can think of it this way about irresistible grace. Did you have anything to do with your creation? Did you contribute to being created? No. Did you have anything to do with your birth? Did you contribute to being born? No. Do you then have anything to do with the new creation, with the new birth? No. In all of these things, we are not active, we are passive. We are recipients of a sovereign work of resurrection power. You may be surprised to find out that in the original Canons of Dort, where we get the five points of Calvinism, irresistible grace and total depravity are dealt with together. Again, this shows that Calvinism is a, is a package deal. If total depravity is true, then irresistible grace is true. If you are dead in your sin, you cannot choose to be saved. If, you, if your heart hates God, you cannot choose to love God. If you are in bondage to your sin, 
you cannot choose to set yourself free. Think of this in the history of redemption. Did Israel have the ability to choose not to be in Egypt in slavery? No, they had to be set free from slavery. If you are not that big of a sinner, you don't need that big of a savior. If you are a great sinner, then you need a great savior. If you are guilty, vile, corrupt, blasphemous, wicked, defiled, and miserable in your sin, then you need a radical, omnipotent, sovereign, effective transformation of saving grace from an all-sufficient Savior. And praise God that even though that is who we were, that is also who He is. So thirdly, let's look at the biblical testimony. Look here again at John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Here Jesus is speaking of the decree of election in eternity past and his role in it. Again, election is more appropriately ascribed to the Father. Here Jesus is speaking of his role in election in eternity past. And it's important as we come into this Christmas season to emphasize that Jesus Christ was not created. The Lord Jesus did not begin to exist 2,000 years ago when he was born in Bethlehem. Rather, Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh 2,000 years ago. He has existed eternally. He has no beginning, just as the Father and the Spirit have no beginning. If that sounds obvious to you, praise God that it does, because as we have seen recently, many who confess to be biblical Christians think that Jesus is a creation of God and, and not God of God, consubstantial with the Father. So here Jesus is speaking of his Father's election of sinners before the foundation of the world. What did the Father do with those whom he elected? What did the Father do when he elected sinners in eternity past? We see the answer there in verse 37. And Jesus says, all that the Father gives me. The Father elected sinners before creation, and he gave the elect to the Son. He gave the elect to the Son so that salvation would be accomplished for him in the Son's death and resurrection. And what is the result of this? Again, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So, it is certain, absolutely certain, that the elect will come to the Lord Jesus. None whom the Father elected will be lost by the Son. It is absolutely certain. Those whom the Father elected are those for whom Christ accomplished redemption, are those to whom the Holy Spirit applies redemption. The works of the Trinity are united. John Calvin comments, God works in his elect by such an efficacy of the Holy Spirit that not one of them falls away. So all the elect will certainly come to the Lord Jesus in time and be saved. But how? How will the elect come? Will they choose to do so? Will they exercise their free will and come to Christ all on their own? Look, look, look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me 
draws him. How many people does Jesus say are able to come to him in their own strength? He says so right at the beginning. No one. Why? Why can no one come to Christ in their own strength? Again, because total depravity is true, because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this age, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. People say, what about free will? What about free will? You might be surprised to find out, if you look again in your hymnals at the, at the Confession, chapter 9 is about free will. Calvinists understand there's such a thing as free will, but here's the key. Your will is determined by your nature. Your nature is corrupt through and through in thought, word, and deed. You have a will to, that is free to do whatever you want, and it is determined by your nature to do all that is sinful and contrary to God's will and all that is, is dishonoring and displeasing to him. That's how we use our free will apart from the Lord Jesus. Dead people cannot do anything on their own. Not controversial at all. It should not be controversial. It is perfectly clear. Think of the litany of Old Testament texts that Paul cites in Romans 3 as we heard this morning. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one wants to come to me unless the Father draws him. What, what were we doing? What were we wanting to do before the Lord Jesus drew us to himself? We were swift to shed innocent blood. We were, we were unrighteous. We were ignorant. We were not seeking for God. We were seeking for our own glory. This is why no one can come to Christ on his own. A dead person is unable to do anything. A dead person is unable to come to Christ. But it's more than that. Not only are you unable to come to Christ on your own, you don't want to come to him. You hate him. Your heart is totally hostile toward him, and you have no desire to come to him. I once heard an objection to Calvinism, well, what if someone wants to come, but they weren't elect, and so they can't? Not an option. God only elects, not conditionally, but unconditionally, of his free, sovereign, good pleasure. There is no one who wants to come, but who will be rejected. All who come to the Lord Jesus are drawn by the Father and made willing and able to take hold of the Savior for eternal life. So we need to ask this question. 
How can verse 44 and verse 37 be true? How can those whom the Father gave to the Son come to the Son, as Jesus says, if no one can come to the Son? Do you see that impossible question to answer? Thankfully, Jesus answers it for us. Look at the rest of verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Aren't you glad that Jesus did not stop with, no one can come to me? Unless there is one way sinners can come to Christ, there is one way and one way only. If the Father draws them, that is the only way sinners can come to Christ to be saved if the Father draws them to Christ. That is effectual calling. That is irresistible grace. At this point, our, our, our Arminian friends will say, the Father draws us to Christ in the sense that He woos us. He invites us. You see, God is a gentleman. God doesn't make you do anything you don't want to do. God doesn't force you to do something you're not comfortable doing. Irresistible grace that's a doctrine of violence. That's a doctrine of, of coming upon someone and abusing them. That is a doctrine of, of sexual abuse, as some of, of our Arminian friends portray it. Those are some things that they will say about the doctrine of irresistible grace. But notice that word in verse 44, draws. The word is actually forceful. It's powerful. It, is, it does not mean woo. It does not mean invite. It is more powerful than that. You could translate it drag, haul, carry off. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me hauls him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me carries him off. It is a powerful word. It is not a, an inviting, wooing word. It is a word of power displayed in regeneration. This is the same word translated draws here. This is the same word used in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Jeremiah 38, 13. This was after Jeremiah was thrown into the cistern. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. How do you get out of a cistern? Did they woo him out? Did they invite him out? Come on out, Jeremiah. I invite you to come out of the cistern. No, they drew him out. Why? He couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't do it at all. They drew him out. This is the same word used elsewhere in the New Testament. Look at John chapter 18. John chapter 18 and verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter did not say, come on out, sword. I invite you, sword. I invite you, cut off this guy's ear. I woo you to do this. No, he drew it out. 
Why did he draw it out? Because the sword couldn't draw itself out. Turn to John 21. Start at verse 10. John 21, 10. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. See that word haul there in verse 11? Peter didn't say, Come on up here, net full of fish. You know, I invite you to be our breakfast. No, he hauled it on shore. Why? It could not haul itself. Turn to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16, begin at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. You see what's going on here? Paul and Silas call this evil spirit out of the slave girl. Slave girl's owners are, not, are upset with Paul and Silas. What do they do in verse 19? They dragged them into the marketplace. It, did, it doesn't say the owners said, come, Paul and Silas. I invite you into the marketplace. I invite you, I woo you to come with me. No, they dragged them. They were taken by force. Do you get the point? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The dead sinner cannot raise himself from the dead. That is only a sovereign work of God. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. At the moment of conversion... The Holy Spirit never fails to regenerate, to save those whom the Father has elected and the Son has redeemed. That is irresistible grace. The Father drawing sinners to Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. God effectually, God effectively calls us into saving union with the Lord Jesus. John Murray in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, illustrates this. He says that effectual calling is a summons. It's an authoritative order to come and appear. By this summons, God makes his people partakers of redemption in the Lord Jesus. The summons is effectual. It is effective because God issues it. It is an effectual call for that reason. Think of a court summons. 
You're told that you are required to appear in court. You have to do so. There is penalty if you do not appear. You have to appear, but you can choose not to appear. You can disobey the summons. You can resist the summons. If you do so, if you disobey the summons, you'll be apprehended against your will to appear in court, whether you like it or not. So the court issues a summons. You're authorized to come, you're required to come, but the summons itself cannot bring you to court. The summons has no power to bring about what it commands. That depends on you. As it's often put, God casts a vote for you, Satan casts a vote against you, you cast the deciding vote. Effectual call is totally different. God issues a summons, he calls us out of sin and misery into the Lord Jesus. This summons that God issues brings about what it commands. It is creatively constitutive. God effects what he commands. John Murray says the summons is invested with the efficacy by which we are delivered to the destination intended. We are effectively ushered into the fellowship of Christ. So in other words, when God effectually calls, he creates what he calls for. Does that sound familiar? The creation week, when God said, let there be, and there was. He spoke what he wanted into existence. That was the only way anything could have come into existence, if he commanded it to be so by his creative word. Well, in the same way, just as it was in creation, so it is in the new creation. God effectively summons when he says, come to Jesus Christ, you come to Jesus Christ. He creates what he calls for. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In doing so, the Holy Spirit works regeneration. That is what Ezekiel 36.25-27 is all about. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is why irresistible grace does not mean sinners come into the kingdom kicking and screaming. We come into the kingdom grateful with delight Because God has changed us. There is a totally new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a living heart. A heart that loves what God loves, that hates what he hates. Removing our heart of stone, which hated him. And he's given us hearts that love him and desire to embrace him. Think of the very next chapter in Ezekiel 37. The valley of dry bones. God says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, somewhat obviously, oh Lord, you know. Yes, of course the Lord knows. But how did the the bones come to life? Did they choose to live? Did they decide to reach out and take hold of resurrection power? No, God raised them from the dead. And so it is with all who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Cans of Dort, head for article 11. But when God accomplishes his good pleasure in the elect, or works in them true conversion... He not only causes the gospel to be externally preached to them 
and powerfully illuminates their minds by his Holy Spirit, that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. But by the efficacy of the same regenerating Spirit, he pervades the inmost recesses of man. He opens the closed and softens the hardened heart and circumcises that which was uncircumcised, infuses new qualities into the will, which though heretofore dead, he makes alive. From being evil, disobedient, and refractory, he renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it like a good tree. It may bring forth the fruits of good actions. Aren't you glad that God did not give you a choice in salvation? Aren't you glad that God doesn't leave the choice to you? Aren't you glad that God did not ask for your permission whether you wanted to come into saving relationship with the Lord Jesus? Article 12, and this is that regeneration so highly extolled in Scripture, that renewal, new creation, resurrection from the dead, making alive which God works in us without our aid. But this is in no wise affected merely by the external preaching of the gospel, by moral suasion, or such a mode of operation that after God has performed his part, it still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not, to be converted or continue unconverted. But it is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful, and at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious and ineffable, not inferior in efficacy to creation or the resurrection from the dead, as the scripture inspired by the author of this work declares, so that all in whose heart God works in this marvelous manner are certainly, infallibly, and effectually regenerated and do actually believe, whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active." Wherefore also man himself is rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, Jesus speaking of future glory. Begin at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Do you have a footnote there in verse 28 by new world? Does it say in the regeneration? It's one of the few times the word regeneration is used in the New Testament. Not to speak of sinners being regenerate, but of the entire universe being regenerate. Does the universe choose to be saved? Does the universe choose when Jesus will return? No, it is passive. In the new world, in the regeneration, when the Lord Jesus returns and there is a cleansing of all the, of the heavens and earth into a new heavens and new earth, a total transformation, 
That Jesus calls a regeneration. So it is with the sinner. It is a total holistic change to which you contribute nothing. God sovereignly applies his redemption to you. Finally, some points of application. Again, what did you contribute to your salvation? Did you choose to believe all by yourself? Well, really, the one thing that you did contribute to your salvation is your sin, is your need to be saved. That was all of us. But the application of of salvation was all of God alone. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you contributed nothing to your election, you contributed nothing to the work of Christ at Calvary, and you contribute nothing in the application of redemption to you for eternal life. It is a work of monergism. It is a work of one, God and God alone, saving you from his wrath and raising you from the dead to eternal life. We do not cooperate with God's grace. We simply receive God's grace. Do you know for yourself that God's grace is amazing grace? Grace that you did not earn. Grace that found you where you were, lost and dead in sin. Grace that raised you from the dead. Grace that gave you a new heart with new desires. Listen to the helpful words of Joel Beakey. If you are to be saved, it must be by the operation of God's irresistible grace in your life. So you must pray that his word might be applied to your heart to create in you a sense of need. Tell him of your hopeless, helpless condition. Tell him you see no way out of this predicament unless he is sovereignly pleased to rescue you. Pray that he would regenerate you, that he would cause a spark of divine life in your soul. If God did leave us to ourselves, left the choice up to us, we would never come. We would remain in our sin and we would love it there. So come to the Lord Jesus and know that when you come, it is only because a loving, omnipotent, sovereign Father has drawn you to come to his Son by the regenerating power of his Holy Spirit. May God be glorified in the preaching of his word.